part and I will yeah. do that. Just gonna give people the chance to log in. Yeah. I'm seeing names pop up. Hi everyone. That's welcome, welcome. And I We're just that. gonna yeah. Uh let me just see. Oh I hit participant, right? Yeah. Oh, I see there's a yeah, I saw that. Okay. So people usually are I don't, I don't usually click on that because it's distracting a bit. So yeah, I mean you can you can take it off. It's probably but better. I, yeah, yeah. Because people kind of come in and they come late. And and... They come in or come late. Closed so, caption transcript is being generated. Okay. Yeah. So some people are getting subtitles in case their sound right. isn't very good. So hi everyone. Welcome. Uh, we are back with a new season of In the Headlines. We're super excited to be here. Uh, I'm Maria. If you have any tech support needs, I am here to help. Angela will be back next week to help you with your tech support. So without further ado, here we have Mr. Hershey Dwoskin with In the Headlines. Hi, everybody. It's so nice to be with you again. Um, I was so happy to be with you in person uh, over the whole summer fall. Um, but as you know, um, I spend my winters in Florida, and I did a lot of traveling this winter. So I was going to tell you about it. I want to thank Maria for hosting and helping out. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to have these Tuesday afternoons together to explore what's going on in the world, to talk about some of the issues, to hear any questions that you might have, either on the subject that I'm talking about or something else. And uh, so that's the format of our hour together. Could be a little more. And um, so I thought I'd speak uh, today. Uh, well, I'll start with about my travels um, because, you know, I think one of the best way to learn learning about uh, different places is to go visit them and talk to different people there. And, um, you know, thankfully I have the opportunity and the desire and the ability to go traveling around the world, which uh, I've done and which I continue to do. So I'm just going to briefly tell you where I went um, in short so far, and then um, we'll talk about what's going on in the world. So I did a trip to Patagonia this um, uh, November, which means we started in Chile and flew down to the very bottom of South America. And at the bottom of South America, as you might know, it's the windiest place in the world. It's a place where uh, the ocean between the bottom of South America and Antarctica is considered to be the most dangerous uh, ocean to travel in because the waves are so high it's so cold, it's so windy. And even on land at the bottom, it was so windy and cold that um, it's something that the people live with all the time. There's no trees there because it's just so windy all the time and so cold all the time. Um, but the area is ideal for sheep raising. And we visited a sheep farm. Interestingly enough, this farm was uh, settled originally by English people who came from the Falkland Islands. So the government of Chile invited them to come to raise sheep because the pasture is just so good. And uh, they did this for over a hundred years, but now the wool prices are so low that um, because, of <clears throat> because of artificial um, materials uh, that this family decided to make tourism their main focus. And so they invite tourists to come visit their sheep farm 
watch a sheep being sheared, learn about the, um, the sheep business, visit their family home and have a barbecue of lamb. And, you know, that's what we did. So this family has English last name, but they speak Spanish because over the last hundred years, of course, they assimilated. Then they have to learn English all over again to deal with tourists. So that was the, that was the visit. And then afterwards, we visited the, the mountains and glaciers of Patagonia in Argentina. <clears throat> and uh, I had a chance in Argentina to experience the difficulties that that country is going through. And after we flew to Buenos Aires, it was the day that the new president was inaugurated. So the whole city was shut down, uh, blocks were blocked off, and the new president, Mr. Millet, took over. And uh, he is uh, basically an unknown quantity. He said all kinds of things in the past, some of which are completely crazy, but it depends on what he actually does, which will tell the story. I think Argentina has sunk down so low in uh, its morale and its economy that they're willing to reach out to anybody who made some kind of crazy promises. And, and uh, that's how this Mr. Millet was elected. And the first thing he did was he devalued the Argentinian money from 400 pesos to the dollar to 800. Uh, we were offered a thousand in, in rest. Hi, everyone. We seem to have lost Mr. Dwoskin. He will connect again shortly. Oh, there you are. Hold on. You're muted now. We're just going to get you to unmute. Uh, no, no, can you hear, can you hear yeah, me now? Yeah, we're back. Yes. Something just changed. I don't know what changed, but... I, didn't I think the I think the internet just glitched oh, a little bit. The internet just popped out. Yeah, that could yep. well be. And we're back. But in any case, I was speaking about Argentina and how um, the um, uh, the living standards are really so stressed there. The people are so stressed that they elected this kind of uh, out of left field type president. And um, but we enjoyed the, the beautiful steak dinners that they had there for nine to ten dollars each, which um, if those of you um, who like good steak and have you ever been to Gibby's, the quality of the steak that we had was better than that. And it was only nine or $10, so a US. So it goes to show then, you know, what, 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 uh, what things have become in that country. Uh, I hope you could still hear me. I'm just, um, uh, I don't see myself anyway. Um, no, we're good. So, yeah, you're good. Okay. So it says podcast on my uh, on my little screen over here. So um, after that, we flew to um, Brazil and we saw these beautiful Iguazu Falls. 
And of those of you who are nature lovers and who are waterfall lovers and who have the time and the ability to travel, I would give my highest recommendation to visiting Iguazu Falls. It's almost like 20 Niagara Falls lined up one next to another with wonderful walkways going right next to the falls and you can have the waterfalls you know, fall right over the top of you. And they have those little boats, just the, the way they have in Niagara Falls that go up to the falls. It's a wonderful experience, especially because the falls are really in two separate countries, Argentina and Brazil. And um, you could get good views from both countries. And um, it's, it's an interesting experience because these falls are actually uh, bordering on three countries, the third one being Paraguay which is um, um, one of the countries that shares these falls. So where the three countries come together, that's where these falls are. And from there we flew to Rio. Uh, and I've never been to Rio, but it's, it is a beautiful city. And of course, the very famous uh, mountains in the middle. Uh, the beauty of Rio is the physical, um, uh, the physical location, the physical setting of its beaches, its it's huge mountains right in the middle of the city. And um, of course the people and the beautiful people and the beaches and all that. It's uh, not an exaggeration to say that Rio uh, has some great um, advantages, but it also has some great disadvantages. And the first disadvantage came when the Brazil moved the capital of Brazil um, in the 1960s from uh, Rio to Brasilia in the center of the country. And um, this segues very nicely into the next place I went to visit, which was Tanzania, where they also moved the capital um, much more recently from the coastal city Dar es Salaam, which was the economic and the political capital. They moved uh, the capital to another city in the center of the country just to, to, to um, uh, kind of uh, spread the wealth around and to get the congestion out of the city. And, and so many countries have done this now. Nigeria did it in Lagos to move the capital to Abuja. And Indonesia is doing it from Jakarta, moving the capital to Borneo, just to get rid of the congestion, the crowdedness, the overpopulation, the uh, lack of housing um, and uh, crime. And, um, you know, just, you know, to have a large city is good, but if the city is too large and too uncontrolled and, and too, too, uh, um, too spread out, uh, it makes travel, business, and everything else much more inefficient. So these countries all decided to move their capitals. Now, I was in Tanzania to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, and I'm going to just stand up and show you my shirt to see that I got there. Beautiful shirt with Africa and zebra on it. And... Um, I climbed that mountain less than a month ago, going from the bottom to the top, which is um, the highest mountain in Africa. It's an extinct volcano. And it's a very popular place for tourists to come because although it's a very high mountain, it's not a technical mountain that requires special equipment to climb. But what you do need is the training and the ability to to go up to very high heights um, without passing out and without losing all your strength and without uh, vomiting and without uh, getting headaches and dizziness. And all these things are common, uh, common um, 
symptoms of mountain sickness or elevation sickness. And the trick is that you have to go up very slowly and so let your body get used to the higher and higher elevation. So it took us six and a half days to go up, two and a half days to come down. And uh, it was just a kind of a mind-blowing experience to be in a way on the top of Africa looking out. Well, the the you know uh, the weather was not great for us at the very top because it was a snowstorm, but certainly going up you could see all the stars in the sky and you could see the villages far far down below, and the mountain itself is enormous. It's a huge, um, uh, huge mountain all the way around, and um, it's in a national park, and uh, some thirty thousand people go up there every year. We saw tourists from China, we saw tourists from Russia, we saw tourists from all over Europe, um, from all over Asia, uh, everyone with, uh, you know, their own staffs of people to help them climb up. So just to give you an idea, you don't do this on your own. There's a whole team of porters that carry all the equipment that you need to go up, the beds, the cooking utensils, the toilets and everything else. So. Um, if somebody is interested, you can just get in touch with me and I'll tell you the company that sponsored it, which was really quite remarkable. So um, that was the end of my travel so far. And uh, I have many other ones planned for this year, but not at this, you know, not, not at this juncture. So let's talk a little bit about what's in the news. And obviously, um, there are some uh, news items which are... Uh, which are kind of uh, unavoidable. There's certainly the wars, the two wars going on right now between Hamas and Israel and between the Ukraine and Russia are the most active um, conflicts going on in the world. Uh, Surrounding the war in the Middle East, you've got other countries which have jumped in to kind of make their own uh, statements. Um, In Yemen, in Lebanon, uh, Americans were attacked in Iraq and Syria, and uh, you, you know the, one of the great hopes of the Hamas uh, attack on Israel was to involve the whole Middle East in a war of destruction on Israel, which didn't happen. But uh, other associated players are still trying to uh, to uh, make their statements, uh, either for their own population or for their own popularity, or just to make a statement around the world. And um, so that war, which started October the 7th, is still ongoing. The war in Russia actually started two years ago, February 2022, when Russia invaded the Ukraine. And uh, it was felt uh, by Russia that within a week they would be capturing Kiev, overthrowing the government, which was elected, and uh, imposing their own sort of puppet uh, stooge. And um, then slowly withdrawing as their own uh, guy took uh, hold of the country. But obviously that didn't happen. The Ukrainians resisted very strongly, pushed the Russians out of several places that they had taken. And for the last more or less one year, the battle lines have been sort of frozen in place. Russia still controls um, somewhere like 10% of the Ukraine that they had captured earlier on back in the 1990s, uh, including Crimea. 
but they haven't been able to push forward. At the same time, the Ukrainians have not been able to push the Russians backwards. And um, there is a kind of a stalemate um, going on as far as the physical battles are concerned. Um, but economic battles are continuing um, with Russia being the frozen out of some of the world trade, uh, with Russia finding new customers for its uh, goods, um, with Ukraine being supported by the Europeans and by the U.S., which um, you know now has hit a roadblock in that. And so um, Russia, uh, you know, has said that they don't want to stop fighting. The Ukraine says that they can't afford to stop fighting. And so this war is just grinding on uh, at a kind of a low level uh, until something may, may happen. So those are the two wars that are of most um, uh, headlines these days. But there are other ones which aren't getting enough attention, including the civil war in Sudan, where hundreds of thousands of people have been displaced and thousands have been killed. There's a civil war in Libya, which has not been resolved. Um, there are still fighting in Africa, in, in, in the eastern part of the Congo, um, uh, in Pakistan and Iran have been at each other a little bit. So, um, you know, although the world pays attention to one thing, um, this is sort of generated in a way by news organizations who, if they would pay attention to something else, that something else would get a lot more headlines and a lot more uh, world attention. Um, um, the third, of course, great um, subject, which is enveloping the news in the, news in the U.S., is the American election, which is forthcoming this November. But uh, for those who are interested in elections, there's going to be an election in Great Britain also this fall. Uh, the world's largest countries in population just about have had or will have elections very shortly. The world's largest democracy, India, is going to have an election this summer. And their elections take place over a period of weeks because the country is so large, the infrastructure is not strong enough uh, to count ballots of possibly close to a billion people, a billion votes all in one day. So they sort of spread out the elections um, over a period of weeks in different states so that uh, the election authorities are able to move from one place to another to monitor how the elections are going. There was just an election in Pakistan this, this week ago, one of the world's largest countries in population it's a partial democracy, and so they did have somewhat of a somewhat of a uh, an open election. <clears throat> um, uh, there, uh, yeah, the, the 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 results of that one have not yet been quite 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 decided yet, um, and so. Uh, uh, you know, just uh, to show that, again, if the world focuses on the United States, it sort of leaves its attention away from other places. And, um, you know, many, many countries are going to have elections this year. Uh, ours in Canada will probably take place next year in 2025. 
Um, but, um, you know, these are all things to follow. Um, the other big subject that just made headlines this week, and I think was the headlines were ignored simply because of all too many other things coming up at the same time, is this ongoing issue of climate change. And uh, the uh, authorities just came out with a firm measure of how the world changed from February 2023 to February 2024. In other words, looking at one whole calendar year up until now, what was the change in the world's average temperature? And they came out with a figure of 1.52 degrees Celsius warmer in February 2024 over February 2023. And this is the first time ever that um, the uh, 1.5 degree increase over historical values, and those historical values sort of, sort of start around 1850, when the Industrial Revolution took, started to really expand. So the world is now on average one and a half degrees Celsius warmer than it was back in 1850. And although it doesn't seem like a lot, uh, you have to remember that this is a world average. In other words, every single spot in the whole wide world averaged this uh, temperature higher than it used to be. And uh, there are also very, very few places that are colder than they used to be. So in other words, this trend is something which is a worldwide trend. It's, it's apparent in all the different continents of the world. And at one point they called 1.5 degrees a tipping point. Um, uh, back, back in the 1990s, when the world first started paying attention to this issue, they said, well, we want to limit the increase in temperature to 1.5 degrees because we feel that anything over that will be a catastrophe. Well, the fact is, of course, that we're now over that and the world has moved the uh, yardsticks or the goalposts to two degrees uh, Celsius above uh, historical values. And what they're hoping is by 2050 that uh, the world will not increase by more than 2%. Uh, of course, um, the climate change or the world getting warmer, you, you could kind of um, compare it to a, a boat moving or a train, well, not a boat train, let's call it a boat, one of those big heavy cargo ships. You can't just put the brakes on and expect the ship to stop. Um, the world will keep on getting warmer even if the world decides to take all the measures necessary to stop it. So we are going to be moving into, you know, this new territory. I was just in Montreal last week. I came with the intention of doing cross-country skiing on the mountain. And lo and behold, as if you all look outside, you'll see nothing. Not, not an inch of snow, a uh, couple of inches of packed ice, which is useless for cross-country skiing. And um, we, Montreal has had like the whole East Coast has had a, um, uh, an in incredibly warm and mild winter so far, uh, way, way, way above average temperatures. Um, I was just looking at some average temperatures where records were beaten by sometimes, you know, 20 degrees 
Fahrenheit um, as far as a high temperature ever. Um, you know, Boston was in the 60s and Burlington, Vermont was in the 50s and uh, Montreal also, uh, you know, uh, in the almost hit 50 degrees last week. So um, this is extremely unusual by a lot. So uh, it does mean that this is not a fluke. It means that this is part of a new, a new uh, world situation. In particular, this year, we could associate it with the El Nino uh, phenomenon, which um, makes uh, the waters in the eastern Pacific warmer. And then when the wind blows from the Pacific onto the land, of course, it makes the land warmer. And so that's part of the reason why the um, certainly the uh, North America and South America have been warmer than normal this year. But El Nino has also had its effect even in Tanzania, where I was, where uh, and all of East Africa, where they're getting much more rain than they used to have. And um, after the uh, mountain climb that I did on Kilimanjaro, I did a four-day safari just looking at the wild animals in the Serengeti National Park and other parks. And the parks were completely green. And normally they're not. Normally they're brown and the animals have to kind of look to find good grazing. But now any animal who just looks down can find grass everywhere and plenty of water everywhere. Water is not just in a few isolated watering holes, but in any kind of low spot, you could find water all over these national parks. And so, um, you know, the animals are thriving. The grass is very uh, lush, um, zebras and wildebeests um, and the buffaloes and giraffes who, who eat grass and the elephants who, who eat tons of grass and leaves every day. They just can find food just about everywhere. So uh, it's a very thriving um, condition right now. Uh, in fact, the rainfall was so heavy in, in East Africa that in Somalia, which is normally a desert country, they had huge floods this spring. You might have seen some of the coverage on TV. And, um, um, you know, in places where there's flooding, of course, this is a question of too much water at one time, like in California. But other places where the rain is a little bit less strong, it just means that there's great conditions going. And uh, that's what we saw in Tanzania. Tanzania is a huge coffee growing country. And I have seen coffee plants all around the world. And I've never seen such beautiful, lush plants full of coffee berries, um, you know, looking absolutely gorgeous uh, at this time of year. So they're going to have a really good crop. Um, and um, it, it's odd how, you know, the news often focuses on bad things and on tragedies, uh, on droughts, on floods and ca other catastrophes. But nobody's going to take a picture of beautiful coffee plants in Tanzania and say, wow, Look at what a great crop they're going to have this year because it's not newsworthy. So um, uh, actually on the same subject, but a different crop, um, cocoa, which is chocolate made of chocolate. They, in West Africa, they haven't had the same kind of conditions. They've had drought conditions, again, because of El Nino. And the price of the, the wholesale price of cocoa has hit the highest ever. 
And uh, because most of the cocoa in the world is produced just in a few different countries, especially Ghana and Ivory Coast. And if they have bad crops, then the whole world uh, production chain is affected. And uh, so that's why the price of wholesale price of chocolate is way up. So with that as a bit of an introduction of some sort of, um, uh, you know, some of the more interesting subjects that are hitting the headlines. Um, I thought that uh, it would be worthwhile to, um, let me just see if I had missed any civil wars here, not really. Oh yes, another, another election coming up is in Indonesia, country I was just in this summer. And uh, again, it's one of the world's biggest countries. It's the world's largest Muslim country. And they're going to have elections uh, coming up this summer. Again, it's a country which is, we'll call it mostly democratic, a few little shaky spots, but um, it's been um, for a while, since the 90s, a very stable and democratic country. And the current president has reached his term limits and um, he said, I'm not going to change the constitution. I'm just going to retire. And uh, although he, he, of course, like many of these people do, they tried to name their children as, as candidates so that the name will continue. And uh, his, his own son is running uh, as a, on a vice presidential ticket with one of the leading politicians. So that's how they do it there. Uh, speaking about naming your children to jobs, we might have seen President Trump, Trump ex-President Trump just nominated his daughter-in-law to be the head of the Republican Party in the United States. So. This idea of uh, nepotism is not just confined to um, third world countries. Um, let me just mention something else before we talk about uh, uh, the war in the Middle East. Uh, economic news. Um, it's, uh, uh, we have to mention or see what's happening all in the economic world. And... Um, you know, I hinted and said before that good news doesn't get as much um, publicity as bad news. And the world has just today um, revamped its uh, predictions of growth all around the world on average from 2.9 to 3.1%, meaning that they, they, they thought that the world would go, grow slower um, last year, talking about 2024, and now looking at what they've got up to date, they see, no, the world is definitely going to do a little bit better than they thought it was. So that's good news. And good news doesn't get, you know, as much publicity as bad news. But um, on the economic front, the United States is really the star of the Western world. And its economy is doing better than any other major Western country. Um uh, due to a whole host of factors, uh, inflation coming down, um, the uh, unemployment rate being low, so therefore demand for labor goes up, so therefore wages go up. And an interesting statistic that <clears throat> I read about and you can find is that in the U.S. and probably also in Canada and probably also in Western Europe, but not for sure, the people who have made the greatest economic gains are the people the lowest on the economic ladder. <clears throat> so, you know, 
the old saying that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer is not true in this particular uh, year, in this instance. That the wages and incomes of people who are on the lowest 10% have gone up faster than people on the highest 10%. And the logic is simple because, uh, because unemployment is so low, employers have to pay more to workers at the bottom scale in order to get them to work, in order to encourage them to take jobs. And um, so the starting point of jobs now um, can easily reach 15 or even $20 an hour for a starting job. And so that is a big increase. In fact, that increases faster than the rate of inflation. So even taking inflation into consideration, it means that people who are um, working for low-paid jobs are doing better than the rate of inflation on average. Um, of course, inflation does eat away at people's savings. It eats away at people's buying power. But so long as they have a job and they're able to keep working, which in, in this day and age is not that hard, um, they are able to kind of stay ahead of the game. People who are seniors, people who are on fixed incomes, they're the ones who are more affected because their incomes do not rise as fast as the rate of inflation. And uh, it means that in effect, their living standard goes down in a highly inflationary period. But inflation is coming down. Uh, it's down now between three and 4%, which is way, way less than the 9% that it was um, uh, you know, at the height of COVID. And uh, it's also predicted in this 2024 that finally uh, interest rates were started shooting up in 2022, but they will start coming down in 2024. And this will have a big effect on affordability of homes, affordability of cars, um, people's uh, credit card uh, interest rates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So these are all indicators pointing into a good direction for the world economy in general. Doesn't mean that every single place and every single city and every single person is gonna have a better economic outlook, but on average around the world, things are getting better. Um, <clears throat> interestingly enough, if you look at a list of countries, um, uh, major countries, uh, Great Britain is the one whose economy is growing the least fast, the European Union, again, the you know, less fast. Um, then comes the US growing quite well, but Russia of all countries, their economy is growing even faster than the American economy. Despite all of the boycotts, despite all the sanctions, despite all the restrictions that Russia has, they have been able to find customers for their uh, exports. The price of oil has gone up partly because of the war, um, and, and Russia is finding all kinds of people to buy their raw materials, and so their economy is growing faster than uh, certain than was ever predicted. In terms of actual growth, though, um, China is still leading the world, even though their rates have come down somewhat, but th they have such a colossus of uh, expertise such a colossus of manufacturing ability, such uh, an input trade 
that um, even with all the handicaps that they have and the real estate market and everything else, uh, China's economy is still predicted to grow over 5% a year. And, you know, they've got a billion and 400 million people. And at 5%, that adds up to a lot of raw growth, raw dollars that are uh, going to be generated by that economy. So, um, uh, you know, in a certain sense, um, you know, when it comes to economics, no news is good news. And uh, we're in a sort of a kind of a no news type situation. But things can change pretty quickly. And let's just talk about one of those changes. We'll get back to our subject at hand, which is that the, um, uh, the, the uh, Shia-led rebels in Yemen, called the Houthis, who run half the country, or a little over half, have decided, you know, in, in sympathy with Palestinians to attack shipping in the Red Sea. And they have launched drones, missiles, um, underwater um, torpedo type things to try to hit, and they successfully did hit, cargo ships traveling in the Red Sea. And so the shipping companies said, well, look, rather than risking uh, a shipment in the Red Sea, if we're going to go from, say, Japan or China to Europe, will just drive all around the bottom of Africa and come up the west coast of Africa instead of taking a shortcut through the uh, Red Sea and into the Suez Canal. So the country most affected by all of this uh, disaster is actually Egypt because the Suez Canal provides 2% uh, of their total income, which is quite a bit. And if ships are avoiding the Red Sea, they're also avoiding the Suez Canal. So, uh, you know, this is how world trade could be upset, um, you know, all of a sudden. In fact, the Suez Canal I was looking uh, uh, handles somewhere between 15 and 20% of all world trade that is um, shipped on ships. And, um, you know, if this route is cut off, it means a huge uh, change in the whole pattern of world trade. So, um, you know, this is an ongoing battle or an ongoing phenomenon. Uh, the Americans and the British and the Europeans have sent all kinds of weapons and, and, uh, and aircraft to try to stop the Houthis from attacking world shipping. And of course they said, well, we're only attacking ships that are Israeli connected, but they have no idea what a ship is. Most people don't know what a ship is. It could be listed in five different ways and owned by five different owners. Um, the shipping industry is not notoriously opaque. And so um, they've been attacking all kinds of ships, including, they believe it or not, attacked a ship filled with Brazilian corn going to Iran. And, um, you know, I don't know if it was a mistake or not a mistake, but uh, it goes to show that any ship is vulnerable even a ship going to Iran with food, which um, theoretically, Iran is the biggest supporter of the Houthis. You'd think they wouldn't fire on one of their own ships, but stranger things have happened. So uh, what I, the point that I was trying to make is, is that sometimes the economy looks like it's going okay, and then all of a sudden you have something like COVID or you have something like a war that breaks out, 
and it, it can kind of turn everything upside down. Um, so that said, I'm going to just uh, spend maybe the rest of the time, uh, and certainly maybe next time, to talk about the war which is going on in between Hamas and Israel. It's certainly something which is on the top um, uh, concern of many of our uh, listeners. Um, and it is really the top concern of the whole world because of the fallout that this war has entailed. In other words, what I was saying that neighbors have come into play, um, world leaders have had their say. Um, it, it's the hottest subject now um, in international conflicts in the whole world. This conflict started on October 7th, and we're now past February 7th, so it's been going on for four months. And uh, the attack started when uh, some 1,500 or so Hamas fighters just crossed the Israeli border with no resistance, uh, killed 1,200 people on one day, some of whom were um, villagers in, in villages in Kibbutzim that are around the Gaza border. Uh, some 300 of them were attending a music festival. They took as hostage 300 people and brought them back into Gaza. And they met at first almost no resistance. So this was a massive, massive failure of Israeli security to, to know what they were doing in advance to stop them from crossing the border. And uh, once they did cross the border, some of them stayed in Israel active for over a week. And so just finding these people once they crossed the border was also uh, a difficulty. <clears throat> it was the worst attack on Israel since the state was founded in 1948. Most people killed at one time since that time. And it was uh, an attack which shook the country to the core. It, um, it, it had implications uh, of political implications, economic implications, uh, uh, every, every imaginable form of living in the state changed from before this happened to after this happened. Um, the day after the attack happened, the Prime Minister Netanyahu said that it, you know, his goal was to free all the hostages and to destroy Hamas. And if you would have asked him, how long would you think this would take? He never would have said, oh, in four months' time, we're st we still haven't destroyed Hamas and we still haven't freed any hostages. Just yesterday, they managed to free two hostages. At the very, be very beginning, they freed one. And as you know, tragically, three of them were killed by Israeli forces who had already escaped Hamas. But in essence, if you look at the scorecard, they have, they have freed almost nobody after four straight months of fighting. The 80% uh, of the Gaza Strip has been physically destroyed by Israeli um, bombing and shelling. Um, of course, the uh, Palestinians claim some 28,000 Palestinians were killed. Hard to know if this is true or not. Hard to know where the numbers come from. And uh, as is always pointed out, they count Hamas uh, 
soldiers or Hamas militants or Hamas terrorists as part of the Gaza population. So um, Israel claims that it must have killed somewhere around 9,000 of them. Um, there are still, uh, if, if Israel's estimates were correct at the beginning, they estimated some 25,000 uh, Hamas um, militants were serving under arms. And so uh, Israel has not even um, killed half of them. So the, 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 you know, the aim of eliminating Hamas is, is, is ongoing. Uh, certainly there are many negative fallouts from this war um, in Israel and abroad. So um, one of the, one of the, of course, one of the big fallouts is that the Israeli people have lost confidence in the government um, and some even in the military uh, because the military was completely uh, blind to this attack. Even though there were some warnings that something was going on in Gaza, the higher-ups in the military dismissed these warnings. Um, everyone in the military, including in the intelligence and the chief of staff, have a, you know, uh, admitted that they were wrong, that uh, this was a successful attack that Israel didn't anticipate. But, you know, needless to say, the prime minister um, takes no responsibility and says that, um, you know, we're going to win and we're going to defeat Hamas and free the hostages, which both of those, like I said, haven't, has, haven't happened yet. The, um, the um, divisions that were present in Israel beforehand, which mainly circled around the attempt of the government to uh, circumvent the role of the Supreme Court and to change the whole role of the judicial system, to make the government itself the last word and not the court's last word, so this attempt had really divided the country. You might remember there was uh, more than 40 weekly demonstrations of hundreds of thousands of people against these changes. But these demonstrations stopped immediately once the war started. Um, but now the government is, uh, the people are divided between those who say that the number one job of the government is to bring back the hostages alive uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, the ones who say, well, the number one job of the government is to defeat Hamas. And of course, uh, the hostages are being used as human shields so that if the upper uh, leaders of Hamas were ever found, um, they say that they would kill all the hostages before uh, allowing Israel to kill them or to capture them. And so this division um, in Israel now is very strong. Uh, people say that Israel should negotiate as they did before to uh, trade prisoners for hostages, to trade uh, ceasefire for hostages. Um, and on the other hand, there's people who say uh, that um, there should never be a ceasefire that Hamas should be defeated, and uh, if the hostages are killed in the meantime, well, they were as good as dead anyway. Um, the um, freeing of the two hostages changed a little bit of this perspective 
because it showed Israelis that yes, the hostages are still alive, number one. And it did show that the military are able under certain circumstances to actually free the hostages without negotiating. So, um, you know, both aspects have been in a certain sense changed by this latest news, but the whole picture remains the same. What is different is that the world's attention on Israel has grown very strong and the world's condemnation of Israel has grown very, very strong because of what is perceived as um, a killing of innocent civilians in the middle of this war and destroying the whole uh, territory of Gaza in, in the middle of the war. Needless to say, Israel says that these are, um, these are uh, a war is a war. And these are uh, unintended consequences, or they are, uh, they are uh, not purposeful uh, killing of civilians, but these civilians are in harm's way. And Hamas uses civilians as human shields, and Hamas hides in people's houses, and Hamas has you know, erected this system of tunnels, which even Israel was shocked to find out how, how extensive they were, how sophisticated they were, how um, large they were. And Israel found, um, you know, they don't even know what percentage of tunnels they actually found because they're finding new ones every single day. But certainly the sophistication is something that surprised the Israelis, the communication ability, the computers that were underground, the, um, the network of tunnels which intersect with each other the running of electric lines and communication lines inside the tunnels really enabled Hamas to be invisible to Israel for the whole time, enabled them to plan the uh, attack and enabled them to take hostages to safe places. So um, uh, Israel, which often has a tendency, especially on the right, to dismiss uh, Arabs as a whole, to dismiss their abilities, to say that these are very unsophisticated people, um, they certainly learned a lesson in, in seeing how well prepared the, the Hamas was in Gaza. Um, the, uh, the, negative effect, the negative effects of this war have not only hit the political realm, where the world has started to condemn Israel, uh, to condition its support on Israel's not uh, harming civilians, uh, to threaten to cut off aid to Israel. Um, all of these things are happening. But the, the, the position that Israel once held as sort of the best security country in the world, uh, having the most sophisticated security, the most sophisticated surveillance, uh, the best drones, the best satellites, the best com communications, the best spies, you know, all of this kind of... Uh, superiority in the security realm was destroyed by the, this Hamas attack. And uh, the world can sort of look at Israel now and say, well, they're no better than us, um, uh, or they're even worse than us because we would not have allowed something like this to happen. So uh, in a certain sense, Israel's security reputation is in tatters. The, all of the equipment that Israel was selling to the rest of the world it could be affected by this kind of terrible outcome. And um, economically speaking, um, because Israel had to mobilize 
uh, hundreds of thousands of soldiers. Because people were displaced uh, all around the Gaza Strip from their homes, because the Hezbollah in Lebanon has continuously attacked northern settlements, you have over half a million Israelis who are not working, um, who normally would be working, and the taxes that they would be paying would go to the government. The government before the war was running a very modest uh, deficit of seven-tenths of a percent, meaning that, <clears throat> meaning that for every hundred and one dollars that they spent, they were collecting a hundred, uh, which is pretty good in terms of uh, you know government uh, deficits. Um, the predicted deficit now could be over six percent, not not one, not seven tenths of one percent. And the Moody's um, Investment Services just downgraded Israel's debt because of the war, because of ongoing expenses, because of the instability, um, because of the lack of unity in the country. Um, they downgraded Israel's debt, and that's a really big black mark on the country because it means that for Israel to borrow money will cost them a lot more. It means for anybody cons considering investing in Israel or investing in the stock market or investing in real estate, it means a, a less secure place to invest once, uh, once Israel's um, economy gets downgraded, once their debt gets downgraded. And it's a, um, it's a really uh, a black mark on any country to have their, um, you know, it's almost like a, a teacher marking you down in, in school saying you're not an A student anymore, you're a B student. It's exactly the same thing as what happened to Israel now. So their economy is affected, the political situation is affected. Um, the, um, the, uh, the spreading out of anti-Israeli feeling around the world has found itself in that South Africa took a case in the United Nations accusing Israel falsely, of course, of genocide in Gaza, uh, accusing Israel of purposely trying to get rid of the people in Gaza so that they could settle the, the, the territory themselves. And of course, they quote right-wing right -wing politicians in the Israeli government who said exactly that. Uh, they said that, um, you know, in general, these right-wing politicians would like to get all of the Arabs out of the territories that Israel controls. They would like to bring the settlers back to Gaza, where they were forcibly evacuated in 2005. And um, the statements of these right-wing politicians are picked up by news media and serve as a basis to make accusations against Israel, where... Um, you know, these statements are just fanatics who are letting off steam. Uh, but people can say, well, you know, they're in the government, so they must represent something. And they do represent something. They represent um, the feelings of some people in the country who have become, in a way, far more anti-Arab than they were before. Uh, the, the possible peace, which uh, was never... Uh, an issue under Netanyahu, but was certainly an issue in the opposition. The fact that the the uh, Hamas attacked Israel so brutally 
makes many Israelis feel that peace is impossible with these people, with the Palestinians, and in a certain sense could condemn Israel to uh, unending um, uh, conflict with the Palestinian people for generations to come. So that's certainly one effect of this war. And it was an effect which um, Hamas wanted. This war uh, took place under the kind of umbrella of uh, peaceful um, relations going between different countries, Arab countries in Israel. There was talk Saudi Arabia would, would uh, you know, recognize Israel at some point or other. But um, this attack was meant to blow up these ideas. It was meant to turn the Arab world against Israel. And uh, like I said before, to even get physical attacks coming from Syria, coming from Lebanon, coming from Jordan, coming from Egypt, coming from the Palestinians in the West Bank, coming from Palestinian Israeli Arabs themselves. Um, they were hoping for some more, one big conflagration, one big bonfire, one big explosion, which would um, destroy the whole state. This didn't happen by a long shot. And that's part of the good news. So there were mostly, there are mostly bad outcomes of this war. And I didn't mention uh, anti-Semitism around the world as one of these bad outcomes, but it's certainly worth being mentioned. Um, uh, the um, news came out today that uh, a Swiss uh, a ski lodge refused to rent skis to, to Jews. Um, there have been uh, hunger strikes at Brown University. Uh, there have been um, anti-Semitic uh, events happening all around the world uh, associating the Jews with Israel. And I think it's important to point out that uh, although Israel is the only Jewish country in the world, Jews who live around the world have no responsibility for and no connection to whatever is going on in that country. And Jews are being used as scapegoats for Israeli actions in that war. And um, uh, if, if Mr. Netanyahu ever thought of anything, which he usually doesn't, um, you know, he, he could think that, it, you know, uh, he, he, he claims that Israel is a country that's there to defend all the Jews, but if his actions cause more anti-Semitism and more attacks on Jews, then he's not doing his job. And um, I believe this happens to be the case, certainly at this moment. But Israel is in a no-win situation. They're stuck between a rock and a hard place. If they try to eliminate Hamas, it means killing thousands of innocent civilians. If they don't eliminate Hamas, Hamas is there, said they would uh, repeat these attacks again and again. And so um, Israel has no real easy choices to make. They want to get the hostages back, but they don't want to risk killing them while doing that. Um, they want to get the hostages back, but if they negotiate, uh, the terms will be that Israel has to release a lot of prisoners that they would rather not release. And these prisoners could then turn against Israel, which uh, happened in the first release. So Mr. Shinwar, who's the head of the Hamas, the military wing in Gaza, he was a prisoner in Israel who was released as part of the deal to um, get back uh, Gilad Shalit, who was uh, captured um, uh, using a tunnel, uh, which went into the Israeli territory, 
They kidnapped him, uh, brought him back to Gaza, and Israel agreed to release a thousand prisoners in exchange for him. And among these thousand prisoners are some of the top Hamas um, fighters, including the uh, head of the whole Hamas military. So, like I said, you know, there are very, very few um, uh, world leaders who would like to be in Israel's place right now because they're getting condemned by all sides. The choices that they have are between uh, the devil and the deep blue sea. And um, it's, uh, you know, it's a miracle in a certain sense that um, the country has held uh, as strongly as it, as it has. Another big uh, issue that has come forth is this division between the ultra-Orthodox and the rest of the country, where so many people have been called up to the military. 229 Israeli soldiers have been killed in action. And the ultra-Orthodox, of course, still maintain their right to not serve in the military, to not be drafted, to not be conscripted, to continue working and living their lives like every like every citizen would want to do, but only they have the privilege of doing that. And uh, the Israelis are getting fed up with this. And, um, uh, you know, at one point or other, the, this whole situation may change because of this war. So that's another division that's been sort of exposed. On the positive front, on the positive front, we have to, let me just maybe finish with this, is that the conflagration that Hamas hoped would happen outside of Israel and inside of Israel hasn't happened by and large. So yes, it's true that Hezbollah has fired off some rockets against the northern settlements in Israel, but they've got many more rockets than they've fired off. Um, in the meantime, um, the other neighbors, Egypt and Jordan and Saudi Arabia have not attacked Israel physically. Uh, most, I would say, optimistically important uh, of anything else is that the Israeli Arab population, who are 21% of the country, have by and large not taken Hamas's part, have not uh, demonstrated, have not uh, sabotaged Israel, um, have not um, uh, shown any real sympathy to the uh, war that Hamas is fighting against Israel. Yes, there's exceptions, but these are tiny exceptions. In fact, in fact, polls have shown exactly the opposite, that Israeli, Arab, Palestinians identify more with the state now than they did beforehand, that uh, in terms of voter intentions, the uh, political party, which had been part of the previous government, is still showing very strongly in polls. Uh, polls, by the way, show that Mr. Netanyahu would be massively defeated if he ran for election. And 85% uh, of people want him out, even including his own uh, political party, because his own party knows that if he ran again, uh, leading the Likud party, that the Likud would lose half of its votes. And so the people who are members of the government obviously don't want to lose their seats. And, you know, when this war somehow comes to an end, if Mr. Netanyahu doesn't quit, uh, he will likely be pushed out by, um, by his party. Um, 
the right-wing racists and ultra-fanatics who are part of his uh, coalition government would also lose half of their seats if an election were to take place. So this election, so, so this war, in other words, may rebalance the Israeli political scene whereby the center parties might win election as they had won beforehand. Um, and uh, this would open the door to some sort of um, more permanent, uh, uh, more permanent arrangement between Israel and the Palestinians, and might then open the door to uh, Israel-Saudi um, uh, positive relations. But in the meantime, um, of course, uh, this is far from happening, and uh, the lives of many. Uh, there's over two million. Uh, uh, Palestinians in Gaza whose lives have been uprooted. Uh, they have been moved from where they were living to practically impossible conditions. And um, the world, including President Biden, has told, uh, uh, I'll finish with this, has told uh, Netanyahu that if he wants to attack the very last bastion of the Hamas in Gaza, that he better make sure that innocent Palestinians are not affected. And uh, he's just trying to figure out how to do that. So it's past three o'clock. We've touched on a few different subjects, many actually, many different ones. Um, and um, I'm now going to allow, uh, or to, to not allow, to invite, to ask you to please uh, comment, to uh, you know say hi, to um, um, you know, give your ideas of what you may have, give your suggestions of what you'd like me to speak about. And um, I'm opening up the floor to you and asking Maria to help out to uh, see if there's anybody who's got comments or questions. So thanks again for listening and for tuning in. Aviva, I see a hand up. No. No? Hi, Aviva. Hi. Nice to hear your voice. Nice to hear your voice again. Thank you. Thank um, you for returning. I oh, miss, uh, I miss oh, you very much. Well, you know what? I loved, loved, loved coming to speak to everyone in person at Code St. Luke down in the dungeon there. And um, even a dungeon is better than, than sort of talking to a, uh, an iPad. And, um, you know, I will be home uh, certainly by by the end of, uh, you know, Passover, April, and uh, hope to see you all again in person. Um, okay. well, the, uh, the, um, the, you know, this Israeli-Hamas war is something I would say that even for people who, who don't pay attention to what's going on in the world day to day, it's something that kind of eats away at you. And it's something that uh, I would say uh, people are living in a way on edge because one never knows what could happen. And um, uh, the, um, the, the unknown part of it is really what is so disconcerting. And uh, one day we might see a headline that all the hostages have been killed. One day we might see a headline that all the hostages have been released. Uh, one day we might see a headline saying that... Um, the the uh, the heads of Gaza of Hamas have decided to to surrender 
or they've decided to take uh, safe um, passage out of Gaza, or we might see that they're saying, oh, and we're going to fight to the end and kill as many Israeli troops as possible. Uh, you just don't know what could happen in this sort of situation. And that's what makes it so, uh, in a way, um, upsetting. I don't see any more questions. I think we'll we'll give people the chance to yeah, think about them. things before next questions. week. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, we will be around... Uh, uh, and we'll be around uh, next week. Um, uh, yeah, if you've got some ideas, if you've got some kind of uh, uh, subjects that you would like me to speak about, there's just uh, the the um, you know the, the the other upsetting uh, you know besides this 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 war, which is really quite upsetting. Uh, living in the U.S. now and just watching American news, it's just so upsetting because of the the sometimes outrageous statements that uh, Mr. Trump has made. And that's regardless of whether you're a Republican supporter or a Democratic supporter, I'll just point out that he said that um, as far as the U.S. is concerned, they don't really need NATO, that uh, the U.S. shouldn't be paying for other people's defense. And uh, even worse, he said, this: if I was president, I would let Russia do whatever it wanted. Now, think of it for us in Canada, we're, we're right on the border of Russia. They're right across the ocean from us in the Arctic. And if, if Mr. Trump says, why should I bother defending Canada if Russia ever decides to invade? Um, remember, the Russian military is a lot bigger than ours. The Russian country is bigger. The population is more than double ours. And if they feel somehow that Canada is undefended and um, defenseless, and if they decided they wanted to, they could invade us. Um, and there's thousands of empty square miles and kilometers up there in the far north that nobody's defending. And, um, you know, the U.S. has always been our kind of uh, shield against this um, Russian threat. Um, and the logic was, of course, that if Russia invades Canada, then they're on their way to the U.S. And so, you know, the U.S. would rather defend Canada uh, outside its own boundaries rather than start to fight with Russia inside its boundaries. But certainly, uh, if Trump gives a carte blanche to Russia to do whatever it wants, you know, if it gets tired in the Ukraine, it might say, well, you know, let's look over the Arctic Sea and see what, what kind of resources they have there in Canada that we could get a hold of. Okay. So it's very, very upsetting uh, that the U.S. has been in a military alliance since the end of the Second World War. So we're now talking 70 something years and that uh, in, in a few different comments, uh, Trump can say, well, you know, I don't care. We don't care about our allies. Uh, they never did anything for us. So why should we do anything for them? And that's kind of the way he sees the world. But it is nerve wracking. Let's put it like that, especially with a, a Mr. Putin, who is so um, <clears throat> willing to break break world uh, norms to invade a country which didn't do anything to itself, to, to, to Russia, just to invade it, just to take over territory, uh, means that once he's done with them, you know, he's going to be looking around for somebody else to invade. And, uh, you know, I don't say it's Canada, but it could be. Uh, actually, a question about the Russian election. I know that they're having an election. Is there 
Any, they are, is there any they hope? Are, no, 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 uh, there's no hope because um, yes, it's true the Russians are having an election. Um, there was one announced candidate who, uh, his name was Boris Nezhezdin, uh, who announced that he would actually stand against uh, uh, Putin and all his ideas. There are a few candidates who, who, who kind of got themselves on the ballot, but they're not really independent candidates in that sense. They're just more of the same. But he said if he was elected, he would end the war. Uh, he would um, uh, make Russia a more liberal democracy. And in order to register to vote in Russia, to be a candidate, you need 100,000 signatures on a, a registration certificate to allow you to become a candidate. And lo and behold, the Russian election authorities who are under Mr. Putin, they counted 95,000 signatures. And they said, well, you're 5,000 short, so we're not letting you run. Of course, he had more than 100,000 signatures, but they only counted 95,000 of them. And he was disqualified for that reason. And he might be arrested because uh, you're not allowed to speak against the war in Russia under threat of arrest. And he did so as a candidate. So uh, there is no hope at this point for uh, a democratic election in Russia or for Mr. Putin to be um, uh, dethroned. Uh, he dealt swiftly with the military rebellion of Mr. Prigozhin. Uh, who was, uh, you might remember, a, an independent Russian a contractor who fought very well in the Ukraine, who um, then got fed up with the lack of support that the Russian military were giving his men. He marched on Moscow. He got close enough. Uh, then uh, Mr. Putin kind of calmed down the situation and said, OK, we'll, we'll look into your complaints. And then the next thing you knew, a plane that was carrying Mr. Prigozhin and all his, uh, all of his friends was sh mysteriously shot down uh, over Russia. And Mr. Prigozhin didn't do the smart thing and leave the country when he could have. Uh, instead, he stayed in and he got what, uh, you know, Mr. Putin said he deserved. So, um, you know, that was the end of the challenge to any sort of Putin-type uh, um, opponent. And uh, Mr. Putin is still relatively young. He's, he enjoys a lot of support in the country. The standard of living in the country has not fallen very much. Um, there's no uh, opponent who has any strength against him. His main opponent is in jail now, Mr. Navalny, who's uh, foolishly again decided to come back to live in Russia, got himself arrested. And um, right now, Mr. Putin has carte blanche to do whatever he wants in the country for the time being. So um, this is a formidable opponent that not only the Ukraine faces, but um, the world faces. And um, it's a shame that in the United States, the Republican Party led by Mr. Trump has decided that Putin is not a threat to the US and uh, they want to defund the aid going to the Ukraine because again, the Trump idea is why should we give money away to people who don't help us? And um, so that's uh, the, the aid to the Ukraine was stalled. The aid to Israel was voted on because uh, Mr. Trump likes Israel. Um, but uh, 
because the Democrats um, uh, tied aid to Israel to aid to the Ukraine, it was voted down in the uh, House of Representatives. A new bill was just passed in the Senate. So we'll see if the House approves that new bill, which contains aid for both Israel and the Ukraine. But uh, right now, um, the Ukrainians are kind of almost grasping at last straws because they don't have the they don't have the manpower, they don't have the money, they don't have the weaponry to continue to confront Russia. And the lesson that Europe knows is that if the Ukraine gets conquered, Russia is not going to stop there. They're going to go and look for someone else to conquer, and uh, it will just make life in Europe far more dangerous. So that's that's uh, you know that's that. <clears throat> Any other questions? Nope. Looks looks nope. like we we all need to oh, f find a bunker. Okay. And uh, okay. yeah. well, <laughs> uh, thank you so uh, much. You know, look, but you know what? Like I said, life is quite unpredictable because you know some assassin can just show up one day and 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 kill Mr. Putin uh, out of the blue, just as other world leaders have been assassinated. And that would change things completely. So you never know. You just never know in in in, in um, politics, especially, um, you know, Mr. Putin has a lot of enemies. He's sent a lot of people to jail. He's stolen or confiscated a lot of people's uh, uh, money, most of it ill-gotten, but he's still confiscated it. He's got enemies all around the world who would love to see him gone. And... Um, you know, he spends a lot of money to defend himself, but, you know, you just never know what could happen. So, you know, we'll leave it at that. So let me so, just thank everybody again. And thank you, Maria. And um, we'll see you all next week. Thank you so much, Mr. Dwoskin. Bye. Okay. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.